one. Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this day. Thank you so much for Sundays, for the opportunity to come together to hear the word of God preached, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to you in glory, to take communion with one another, to have a fellowship meal. We thank you very much for the opportunity to to meet here, and may all that we do and say bring glory and honor to your name. Amen. So before I get started with uh, today's lesson, one thing I do want to say is that uh, I'm pretty sure that I will be leaving some time at the end for questions and comments. So between this week's lesson and last week's lesson, if there's anything you wanted to contribute to the conversation or any questions that you wanted to ask, there'll be time for that at the end. Of course, I say that now and then watch me blather on for 45 minutes and leave you leave you no time at the end at all. Either way, I mean, feel free to come up to me anytime if you have any other clarifying remarks or questions that you have. Uh, one question was already posed to me by Mr. Larry Lawley, so I'll go ahead and answer it now since he so kindly came up to me and asked. So last week I defined the world. I just kind of wanted to give a shorthand definition of what was meant by the world. And I said that it is the systems, institutions, and principalities that are set up against God and his word. And Larry said, well, Jason, what do you mean by systems, institutions, and principalities? And I said, thank you for asking me that question. And it's a fair question. So systems, by that I would mean any sort of ideology, worldview, or religion that is antithetical to the Christian faith and antithetical to God and his word. So this could be Islam, Buddhism. This could be a system like one that I mentioned last week, critical race theory, something along those lines that is a system that's in place, an ideology, a worldview, a religion that is set up in opposition to Christianity. An institution would be kind of exactly what it sounds like. I would identify, for instance, Hollywood as an institution that has largely been captured and is set up and is antithetical to Christianity and to God and his word. I would also say that largely public education is another institution that has been captured and is set up in opposition to God and his word. And then principalities, that would be any sort of supernatural opposition to God. So the devil, demons, things like that. So you have flesh and blood opposition in forms of systems and institutions. And then we also have the very real supernatural opposition to God, his way, and to us as well. So just some clarification for what is meant. So you can kind of picture in your mind what is meant by that. Because Larry also said, you know, who are they? Who are these they's that we need to worry about? And so that kind of gives, puts some flesh on those bones to understand who they are, who these enemies are, and what they look like. So speaking of last week, we saw the importance of defining love as faithfulness to God. So there are many ways in which love can be biblically defined, and there were three that identified, I identified specifically from 1 John that I wanted to discuss and talk about, and the one last week was about faithfulness to God. So when we lack faithfulness to God, and we attempt to serve both God and something else, we end up setting our eyes on the temporal and we take our eyes off of the eternal. This isn't to suggest that temporal things do not matter. Temporal things absolutely matter, but we have to have those things ordered correctly. So one of the things that St. Augustine discussed at length Uh, in the many things that he discussed at length, is this idea of ordered loves, having things in the right order and with the right priority. So we don't ignore the temporal. The temporal is the world in which we live, and it matters, but it can't supersede the eternal. We can't take our eyes off of the eternal and go down the 
wide path that leads to destruction. We've got to stay on the narrow path. And we, we, when we do this, when we attempt to try to have one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom, we attempt to play the game where we are in the world and in the kingdom, kind of like what Christ says in Matthew chapter 6. You can't serve two masters. Eventually, one's going to win out. If you attempt to have fidelity to God, and fidelity to something else that is antithetical to God or something that you're lifting up as higher than God, eventually either God's going to win out or God's going to lose. You're not going to be able to follow both. You're going to follow one or the other. And we risk listening to the world, sounding like the world, and having the world hear us. So those systems and institutions and principalities, we begin to befriend them And in short, we risk shipwrecking our faith because of our faithlessness. So that's sort of a a summary nutshell of what we discussed last week. So this week, we're going to continue to apply a biblical definition to the word love as informed by 1 John. And John and the rest of the biblical witnesses show us that in addition to faithfulness to God, love is also obedience to the commands of God and is a special affection for the brethren. So yes, we do indeed love our neighbor as ourselves, but John takes that emphasis of neighbor love and applies it even more strongly and with more of a, what's the word I'm looking for, just more of a focus on even the affection that we Christians have specifically for one another. And so the passage that's going to be at the center of today's lesson is going to be 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. We're going to look at at least a, a dozen different references in the scripture as well, including other references from 1 John. But this is the main verse kind of at the center of what we'll be dealing with today. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. Here's what these verses state. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So a couple of things to note before we move on. This idea that his commandments are not burdensome. So when John writes this about the commands of God, He's not saying that you're never going to have any sort of suffering or difficulty that accompanies fidelity to God and obedience to his commandments. When he says they're not burdensome, what he means is God's not asking too much of you. So let's just think about this from the perspective of the Ten Commandments. God is not asking too much of you to not worship idols. God is not asking too much of you to take a one day a week to rest and to worship him primarily. God is not asking too much of you to not commit adultery. God is not asking too much of you to not steal from somebody else. He's not asking too much of you when he says don't murder other people. His commandments in that way are not burdensome. But as we're going to see later with some examples that I have, this does not preclude us from suffering. Suffering can very much be a part of the reality in which we live when it comes to faithful obedience to God and his commandments. So, there, uh, when we consult John for our guidance on what biblical love is, uh, few men in the scriptures are better consulted than him when it comes to understanding this really close connection between what love is and obedience and how those two things go hand in hand. Love for God and obedience to his commandments are intertwined and you cannot separate the two from one another. If you remove obedience to God's 
commands from love, you actually don't have love anymore. You certainly don't have a biblical understanding and a biblical definition of love. So the biblical witness, even outside of John, highlights this connection between those two realities. I'm going to read for you about maybe half a dozen or so verses, and this really is but a mere sampling throughout the scriptures of the emphasis on love for God and obedience to his commandments. And I just just remembered one other thing I wanted to mention as well. So we got the note about what it means to be burdensome. I also want to get across the point that when we talk about following God's commands, that not talking about absolute perfection. So James states that we all stumble in many ways. We're all sinners. We sin daily and we sin in many different ways. So it's not as if you sin one time, that means that you have failed to grasp or to love biblically. What it's more taught, what it's talking about more is a, is a, the posture of your heart, your attitude towards God's commandments. Do you diligently pursue obedience to God's commandments, recognizing that as a sinner, yes, you're going to fail, or do you sort of dismiss God's commandments? Do you pick and choose which of God's commandments that you like and that you want to follow? Because there's a difference between somebody who has an attitude of, I am going to faithfully follow the commands of God because that's what love is, and somebody who says, well, I can actually pick and choose which parts of the Bible and which commands I want to adhere to. There's a difference there, and that's going to bear itself out. So again, here's some other verses in the scriptures that show this point. So first, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Daniel 9, 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. John 14, 15, the words of Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus again in John fourteen twenty one. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 15:10 Christ again if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love so we even see an example in the relationship between the son and the father of this idea of love and obedience coming to life and then John's second epistle second John verse 6 and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So in the verse, the verses, 1 John 5, 2-3, at the center of today's lesson, and then in that last verse I just read from 2 John chapter 6, very clear definition. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. It's a non-negotiable for loving God and, by extension, loving our neighbor and loving our Christian brothers and sisters. 
To put it another way, we demonstrate love for God and our neighbor when we obey God's commands. Let me go back to the Ten Commandments. If you, One way to look at this is if you follow the Ten Commandments, you will end up loving both God and your neighbor. You'll end up loving both God and your Christian brothers and sisters. You demonstrate love for God by not harboring idols in your heart or by not having physical idols, right? So the second of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no idols. So whether that's an idol made of wood or stone or metal or lest any of us think that we don't have idols that are physical in our day and age, we certainly do. So whether the idol is one of these things or it's an idol that harbors itself here in our heart, we demonstrate our love for God by not having those things as idols in our life. Same thing with not taking the Lord's name in vain. We demonstrate we love God by obeying that command, by not taking his name in vain with our words. And we also take Christ with us wherever we go in this life, whether it's work or school or whatever it is that we do, we take Christ with us so we don't take his name in vain by our actions and with our words. Same thing with our neighbor. We demonstrate that we love one another and we love our neighbor when we don't commit adultery on our neighbor. We demonstrate love for our neighbor when we don't steal his stuff, when we don't murder him, as ridiculous as that sounds. But yes, that's, these are the ways in which we show love, when we obey those commands. And when we do those things, when we obey those commands, we see how we end up fulfilling what love actually is. I think you get it by now. Obedience to God's commands is inextricably connected to loving God and makes up a part of defining love biblically. Really what we see from the biblical witness, and from John in particular, is if you are uninterested in obeying the commands of God across the entirety of the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, then really what you demonstrate is that you are uninterested in loving God, because those two things are connected and will always be connected to one another. So love is indeed obedience to God's commands. And by obeying his commands, again, we stay on the path of the eternal and we avoid the wide road of the temporal that leads to our destruction. So I mentioned earlier that John states that God's commands are not burdensome, meaning he's not asking too much of us to obey his commands, but suffering may accompany one's devotion to God's law. And I thought of a way, what's, what's a good illustration of this? And I thought of the Tin Boom family. So Casper, Betsy, and Corey Tin Boom. So they were Dutch Christians in the 1940s, and they were living in the Netherlands when Nazi Germany came in and occupied their nation. And just like Nazi Germany had done in Germany and in the other lands that they occupied, they began rounding up Jews in the Netherlands and then sending them off to concentration camps to work hard labor, to be tortured, to be experimented upon, or to eventually be murdered. And the Tin Booms were devout Christians, and they began hiding Jews in their home. And because of the Tin Booms' courage and fidelity to God and to his commands, they ended up saving the lives of number of Jews. And if you think about what their sacrifice meant, it wasn't just that those Jewish individuals or families were saved from the Nazi regime and from certain death. Think about how many generations of those people now exist today because of what the Tin Booms did. The Tin Booms recognized that they could they could just not participate in this. They could just not hide Jews. They could just kind of you know, keep their heads down and mind their own business. They could say, look, this is too much. We need to save our own necks and we need to 
whatever, give these Jews up, but they did not do that. And they did, and they followed God's commands. They loved their neighbor as themselves. They did unto others as they would have done unto them. And quite frankly, they fulfilled the extension of the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder, by defying the wickedness of the Nazi regime. And they did it at their own risk, to their own peril. And eventually they got caught. Somebody, a fellow Dutch person, narked on them. The Gestapo came and took them into concentration camps. Within 10 days of their arrest, Casper, the father of the family, he ended up dying. Betsy Tinboom died in a concentration camp. And then Corey, of course, survived because we have her memoir like The Hiding Place and we know about their life from the fact that Corey was able to survive. And in looking into the Tinbooms, this is just a kind of side bit of trivia that I found interesting, Corey Tinboom was released on a clerical error. She was not supposed to be released from the concentration camp and she was scheduled 10 days later to die in a gas chamber. So God clearly decided it was not time for her to go and that we needed to hear their story and we're all thankful for it. But the Ten Booms could have caved at any point, but they didn't because they loved God and they loved their neighbor. And they knew that that didn't simply mean I feel good in my heart about other people. I have warm and fuzzies for people. No, it meant I need to follow what God says even when I have Nazis hunting me and other Jews down, even when it means certain death for me and my loved ones. Let's look at the flip side of that, though. If love is obedience to God's commands, and by obeying his commands, we stay on that eternal path, then if we fail to obey God's commands, whether out of an ignorance or out of a low view of the authority of the scriptures, that ends up placing us perilously on that wide road to destruction. Now, again, this doesn't, I'm not talking about being a human being, still owning a sin nature and and sinning. Because again, we all stumble in many ways, like James tells us. This is a dismissal of God's commands. This is a look, I, yeah, I can love God and kind of follow Him however my heart tells me to follow Him, rather than with what this book tells us with how we ought to follow Him. So, if you, if you suffer for that disobedience, it's no credit to you. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 2.20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Well, the obvious answer to this rhetorical question is that there is no credit to us when we suffer for disobedience. And it made me think of the many Christians who right now, out of a skewed sense of what love actually is, and out of a desire to show love, to the LGBTQ plus community, that they think that loving these individuals means affirming their decisions, means affirming their chosen identity, which, of course, is nonsense because love isn't affirming somebody's sinful decisions. Love is affirming the commands of God and holding fast to them. Love is obedience to those commands. And using somebody's preferred pronouns or something along those lines, is a clear disobedience to two of the clearest commands in the scriptures, don't bear false witness and don't covet. When you affirm a a man who, for whatever reason it is, you want to call it gender dysphoria, you want to call it a mental illness, or you want to say that a principality is involved and there's some sort of a demonic influence going on in this person's life, whatever it is, If a male says he's a female and requires you and all of society to use she and her pronouns 
and you go along with it and you say, yes, not only am I going to go along with it, but I'm going to say this is the loving thing to do as many Christians do articulate. Then what you're doing is you're aiding and abetting the bearing of false witness. You are involved in a lie and you're aiding and abetting coveting because that man is desiring something, is wanting something he has no business desiring. He has no business wanting. He is a man. He ought to live as a male. There are clear commands for men in the scriptures. And when a man abdicates that responsibility or when a woman abdicates that responsibility, we are doing them no favors whatsoever when we placate that and we're also demonstrating a lack of fidelity to God and what God says. So G.K. Chesterton once quipped that fallacies do not cease being fallacies just because they become fashionable. I would add to that sins do not cease being sins simply because they become fashionable. The sins of the LGBTQ plus and every single one of those letters is a sin. The sins of the LGBTQ plus are very fashionable right now. And many Christians have got caught up in listening to the world, in sounding like the world, out of a skewed idea of what love is. And that's why it's so important when we define love that we go to this book, that we go to what God has to say about what love is. Because if we really want to love a transgender individual or anybody else, we love them by holding fast to the commandments of God. If you claim to love God, but you neglect his commandments, whether that's dismissing them in some way or having a warped understanding of what it means to love God and love others, that can be compared to a man who claims fidelity and commitment to his wife and fidelity and commitment to raising his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but actually follows through on neither. If a man claims that he loves his wife, yet repeatedly commits adultery on her, you would rightfully question whether or not he actually loves his spouse. He may earnestly desire to not commit adultery on his wife, but if he continues to do the deed over and over again, then he's not demonstrating love for his wife. He's not demonstrating fidelity to that covenant that he made before God and before witnesses. Likewise, many Christian parents hear the injunction, raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, send their children to church on Sundays and youth group on Wednesday nights, and then assume that that's all that they need to do. There's no family worship that goes on during the week. They barely pray together. The Bible's barely cracked open at home. And then on top of that, many of them also send their children to the public school five days a week, eight hours a day, and assume that everything's going to turn out fine. If your approach to the command to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is that, then you're not actually following that command. You're not actually demonstrating that you have fidelity to raise your children in the right way because you haven't actually obeyed what God has to say. One example that I wanted to bring to bear as well is Rosaria Butterfield. Since we started selling her book and because I heard her at the ACCS conference, she's a really good example of the opposite of what I just mentioned. She's a good example of somebody who does have a loving obedience to God, even when it is difficult and actually lives it out. So there are two specific examples from her life that I want to highlight. So number one, for those of you who don't know much about Rosaria and her background, Rosaria had her previous life before she became a Christian. She was part of a group of professors and others in her circles known as the New Radicals. They were a group of progressive, 
and liberal-minded individuals who were about as anti-God in their thinking as it comes. She was a tenured English literature and women's studies professor at a public university, and she was an out and proud lesbian living in a lesbian relationship with her lesbian partner. And then in the midst of all of this, she gets saved. She becomes a Christian. And those of you who know Rosaria's conversion story know that knows that this conversion story wasn't just something that happened like that overnight. It was a number of meals and meetings that she had with a particular pastor and his family. And over time, God melted away that heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh inside of Rosaria. So Rosaria becomes a Christian. She wants to be dedicated to the Lord. She wants to obey his commands. She wants to follow his ways. But guess what? She's still technically in a lesbian relationship. She's still a tenured women's studies professor. She's still technically part of this group called the New Radicals. So what is she going to do? Is she going to attempt to have one toe in this radical world, one toe in the kingdom, try to placate her friends and her lesbian lover? Or is she going to have fidelity to the word of God and to this newfound faith of hers? Well, she chose to have fidelity to that newfound faith. And that had to have been a gut-wrenching decision. I mean, how difficult would that have been? All of your closest friends are effectively your enemies. I mean, sure, she's a tenured professor, but how well do you think she would have gotten along with her faculty as this formerly progressive lesbian who's now a conservative Christian, no longer living as a lesbian, and actually beginning to enter into a heterosexual relationship? That would have put her at odds with just about everybody in her world at that time. And students who wanted to have Rosaria Butterfield, Dr. Butterfield, the professor who was a progressive, they're not going to get that anymore. And so she knew that this was going to rock her world and completely change things for her. But she stayed the course, even when it was hard and even when it was difficult. And she faced something similar, not as extreme, but something similar recently. So Rosaria, for a long time, was actually one of those Christians who promoted the use of preferred pronouns and that sort of showing love to the LGBTQ community. And earlier this year, in about March or April, she penned an article that was published by, I think, Reformation 21, in which she didn't just say that it wasn't a good idea to no longer use preferred pronouns. She repented of it. She said that using preferred pronouns and that approach to the transgender issue was a sin and that she sinned for years and years by making that decision. Now, Rosaria is, you know, whether you recognize her name or not, she actually is a big name within Christian circles. She was the kind of person who was invited to all the big conferences and she wrote for the Gospel Coalition. She was a big name within kind of American celebrity evangelical Christianity. And for her to to make that stand, to say, this is actually a sin, and if you are also using preferred pronouns, you are also committing a sin, for her to say that actually put her at odds with a lot of people in the Christian circles in which she traveled. So it's not as extreme of a situation for Rosaria, but it's a very similar situation that she faced just recently, knowing that if she made this stand, that if she had fidelity to what God's word had to say, that if she was faithful to loving him and obeying his commands, that it was going to put her at odds with people in her life. But she did it anyway, because she's a very brave woman who loves God and recognizes that loving God and actually loving people means obedience to what God has to say, not obedience to what our heart tells us. Because like I mentioned last week, our our hearts are, are an issue. They're sick. 
God's word is not sick. God's word is the firm foundation on which we define what it means to love. So 1 John uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 3, those verses place an emphasis on the connection between neighbor love and obedience to God's commandments as well, when it has a particular focus on love for fellow Christians. And John emphasizes this sort of love for the brethren in other places in this letter. Let me read a handful of examples. So in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, here's what John says. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. First John 3, 10 to 11. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then 1 John three fourteen to 18, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then last cross-reference, 1 John four twenty to 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I want to offer some biblical insight. I wish I remember who I heard this from so I could properly cite my source. I'm sorry. I want to offer some biblical insight, though, into what it means to love our neighbor and why we actually should commonly identify our neighbor as our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll attempt to do this from Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. So in Luke, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says Jesus says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to the lawyer and he says, what do the scriptures say? And the lawyer responds back to Jesus with the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says to him, basically, all right, that's good. Go and do that. But then Luke writes that this lawyer, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus one more question. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers that question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jew is walking along the road. He gets beat up, robbed, left for dead. A priest comes by, passes to the other side of the road. A Levite then walks by, passes to the other side of the road. And then here comes a Samaritan, a hated Samaritan, enemy of the Jews. Takes him, picks him up, and on his own dime, takes care of him, nurses him back to health. And then Jesus looks at that lawyer and says, who was the one in the story that showed the man love? 
And the lawyer says back to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, now you go and you do likewise. You do the same thing. There are many things we could learn from that parable. Sunday school after Sunday school could be dedicated to dissecting that parable. I'm going to try to do dissect one part of it in like three or four minutes. One thing we can learn from this parable, amongst the many things that we can learn from this parable about love and about what it means to love our neighbor, is that our neighbor, the people we are called to love, are those who are within closest proximity to us at any moment and have a need. For that Samaritan... The person, as he was walking along that road, in closest proximity to him, who had a need, was that beat-up Jew left for dead on the side of the road. Likewise, one of the ways in which we can understand what it means to love our neighbor is whoever is in closest proximity to us and has a need, and like we read in, I think it was 1 John 3, yeah, the end of that 1 John 3, 14 through 18 passage, if you have the goods and the ability to help, you do so. So who are the people in our lives that we are in closest proximity to? Well, the obvious answer would be our spouse and our children for many of us, our immediate family. Those are the people who are in closest proximity to us. So whenever they are in need, our primary mission and responsibility is to our immediate family. But who else in our lives are within close proximity to us on a consistent basis? Everybody right here in this room. We are within close proximity to one another very frequently. So one of the ways in which we can love our neighbor and show special affection for the brethren is to focus on the local gathered bride of Christ in our local area and to meet each other's needs. I mean, we frequently pray for one another. We are very open about the various and many needs that people within this congregation have. And I think we do a pretty phenomenal job of at least attempting to meet those needs however we can. But that's one lesson we can learn about. Okay, yeah, love our neighbor. Yes, show special affection for the brethren. Okay, what does that mean? It means that whoever is around you and has a need and you are able to meet that need, then meet it. Meet that need. And also what accompanies that is the realization that the people we're around the most, other than our families, for most of us, is the people in this room. So that's why we ought to show them special affection. All right, last thing I want to say, and then, yes, there actually will be time for questions and comments. So the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 2 writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is another way we can show special affection for the brethren. When we bear one another's burdens by confronting one another about our sins, we love our neighbor as ourself. We fulfill the law of Christ. A way for us to show hate for our brothers then would be to refuse them this kindness because it actually is a kindness for us to confront one another on our sins. This is a thing that I, I struggle with. I, I don't, I, this may be weird for some of you to hear. I do not like confrontation. I honestly don't. Can't stand it. It makes me feel icky. I do not like it at all. But we're called to do it. I mean, we don't really have a choice. We're called to do it. No, I'm not suggesting you shake down every Christian you pass on the street and say, you need to confess your sins to me, sir or ma'am. 
But recently, I actually did not fail at this endeavor, so I'll use this as an example of what this looks like. So I had a friend of mine, maybe two weeks ago, contact me, and he asked me for, of all people for him to ask, he asked me for financial advice. So he knew that I follow Dave Ramsey, and so he said, hey, you still following Dave Ramsey? I said, yeah, I pretty much follow his stuff. And he said, okay, I have, I have a question for you. And what's ironic is, I think like a day earlier, I had just asked David and Nicole Alders for financial advice, and now here's someone's coming to me. And so he said, hey, here's my financial situation, what do you think? And in the midst of him asking for financial advice, he actually exposed the fact that he had not been going to church for the last year and a half. And this is a Christian brother of mine. So he moved his family from California to Florida about a year and a half ago. And since that time, in those 18 months, he had not found a church home. But what he had been doing was saving up tithe money in the event that he would find a church so he could donate that money to the church. But he never found the church. So part of his question for me was, what should I do with this tithe money? And so I thought to myself, okay, I'll answer your financial question, but I'm just a complete coward if I don't address the fact that you haven't gone to church for 18 months. So I, 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 well, I didn't look at him. It was a text message. So I responded to him with the text message and I said, listen, you are a man. You are a husband. You are a father. Here's my financial advice. And then after that, get yourself to church. You need to be in church. And he responded to me. He said, man, I needed to hear that. That was good. Thank you. Now, truly deep down, did I actually think it'd go any different than that? No. But in the back of my mind, my mind was telling me, Jason, you're going to offend him. You're going to rub him the wrong way. Do you really want to start a fight with your friend? Sometimes that's what those voices in our heads tell us. Maybe some of you are far more courageous than I am, and you have no problem confronting people about their sins. But either way, one of the ways in which we show that special affection for one another is by doing that, is by bearing one another's burdens, is by restoring our brothers and restoring them in a spirit of gentleness while keeping watch on ourselves. All right, so that's everything that I have for today. So we got, I don't know, maybe five, six minutes left. Any questions or comments from anybody? Be happy to take those. Yes, Nathan. So, so the James reference that I mentioned in here, I would point them to that. I would say, let's interpret and make sense of scripture with other parts of scripture. So I would take them to James. I said, look, here you have in the scriptures as plain as day, this recognition that we all stumble and that we all fall in many ways. There is a very high standard. Be holy as I am holy is the standard that God holds us to. But there's also a recognition within the pages of scriptures that we are frail, that we are finite, that we have a sin nature, that we do stumble in many ways. And I would tell them that, you know, the assurance of your salvation is not wrapped up in perfect adherence to God's commands. So I just direct them back to the cross. The assurance of your salvation is in the finished work of Christ. So number one, that's where your salvation is. It's in the finished work of Christ, not in you sinning one time or whatever or struggling with the sin. And then number two, a biblical recognition that we do stumble in many ways. So... I wouldn't say don't beat yourself up too much, but something along those, you know, something along those lines. Anything else? Yeah, so for anybody who didn't hear that, that's brilliant. So uh, Larry mentioned that Rosaria Butterfield was on Focus on the Family recently, and Rosaria was talking about how she was having a discussion with somebody who was telling her, oh, I just wake up every morning just loving Jesus. I just feel the love of Jesus every morning. 
And Rosaria commented, I wake up every morning loving Rosaria Butterfield and I need to put a stake through my sins. And I, I completely relate to that. I wake up and first thing in the morning, the first person on my mind is Jason Modar. So I can absolutely resonate with what Rosaria is talking about there. And that's just a, that's a really helpful reminder that, yeah, we're, we're pretty darn selfish and we need to recognize that sin crouches at the door seeking to pounce on us. And that, yeah, I mean, if you have a love for Christ, awesome, that's great. I'm not saying let's squash a lo- an actual emotional love for Christ, but let's also recognize that, yeah, there, there are many sins that lurk and that we need to be on guard against. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Larry. Okay, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for this day. I pray that you are with us now in this break. May we uh, just enjoy one another's company. Enjoy that special affection that we are commanded and called to have with one another. I thank you for this church family and this church body. It's a blessing to be amongst these people week in and week out. And just bless uh, Pastor Bradley as he prepares to give his message. Amen.